you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter as we continue on through the book. Today we'll be in verses 13 through 16. As you finish turning there, I'll ask you a very important question. Have you ever witnessed a baby bird reading a flight manual? Well, how is it that they learn how to fly without any formal training or any formal education? Why is there not a flight school that baby birds have to attend? It's a very important question, I think. (laughs) Yes, God. Fish. Fish don't need to be taught how to breathe underwater. They have gills, and so they just breathe. They get the air they need from the water, and that's about all there is to it, because God has designed it that way. No one has to train a human baby to cry. They're going to figure that one out all on their own. Who we are and how we are made has a huge impact on how we live life. Now, for fallen mankind, they walk in sin and rebellion to God. For those who are in Christ, we have been reborn into a new category. But how we are born is going to determine how we live. So what is it that makes the difference between an unbeliever and a believer? Well, the answer is one word, grace. The grace of God is what has brought us a full salvation and enabled us to be His children. So consequently, that grace must and will change how we live. So the big picture idea for this sermon is that because of grace, we must live holy lives. With that background, let's read 1 Peter, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct." Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we're going to look at two points this morning. The first point is that because of grace, we must be focused on glory. So the passage for this morning begins with the word, therefore. That means that something before verse 13 is the reason for what Peter is about to say. Verses 1 through 12 are the building blocks and the logical foundation of for what the Apostle is about to talk about in this section. And so if we are to understand this text for this morning, we need to know the big picture of what preceded it. And the easiest way to summarize the first 12 verses is by the word grace. God has poured out His grace upon us. The Trinity has called us out of sin and death in the world and into life as new creations in Christ. We are now new citizens of heaven, We're new creations in Christ, even as we walk on this earth now. So really what that makes us is elect exiles or elect sojourners. Now the bad news is that we are still on the earth and we have to endure suffering and persecution. But the good news is that this is a temporary exile. We have a living hope through Christ as a result of the mercy and the grace of God. We've been given a rich inheritance and glory that is being guarded in heaven by the Lord until we arrive. And we too are being guarded until we actually make it to heaven because God ensures that we will make it to glory and our inheritance. 
But even now, in suffering, we have a great joy and hope as we contemplate that full salvation that we are waiting on and that we already have in Christ. And one day, when Christ returns, we will receive the finalization and the fullness of that salvation. So the work of Christ and the full salvation we have in Him was foretold by the prophets of the Old Testament and confirmed by the New Testament authors. God spoke through those men to ensure that we received His true and perfect word about our salvation. With the Bible in hand, which tells us about our full salvation and future glory, we are enabled to understand what Peter would like to tell us about next. So we will summarize everything we just said with the term full salvation. We are already saved from sin and made alive, and now we are waiting the day we will be made perfect, receive new bodies, and walk with Christ. That is the full salvation that we have. That's the therefore at the beginning of verse 13. Now, we may move on to the text for today, beginning in verse 13. There's one central idea to that verse. You must set your hope on grace. That's the primary concept of the verse on which every other phrase is dependent. And this is actually the first command given in the book of 1 Peter. While there have been many points of application and many things that we should be doing, even some things that carry some kind of command force, there has been no true command up to this point. This is the first command of the book. And isn't it interesting that he didn't begin this chapter with commands about what to think or feel or do? He talked about the Lord. He explained who we are in Christ. Peter wrote about the rich hope and grace that we have. And only once the reality of the gospel has been explained, does he then turn to the commands. And this is a normal New Testament model for giving commands. Peter has laid the groundwork and the theology necessary to then tell us how we should be living. Theologians like to say that the indicative must precede the imperative. So first, Peter begins with the truths of God, and only then does he tell us how to live in light of those truths. So with all of that background in place, Peter commands us to set our hope on grace. Peter brings us back to that concept of hope which he wrote about in verse 3. There he told us that we have been born again to a living hope because of the work of Christ. And that living hope includes our future inheritance and glory. And so the command is for you to set your hope on that grace, on that glory that we're looking forward to. And so... So the real question is, are you trusting in Christ by faith alone? Are you setting your hope in these things? Well, then you are commanded to look forward to the day when your salvation will be made complete. So this verb, to set your hope on, is actually one word in the Greek. And this is the central controlling verb for the whole verse. So the question is, how are we to set our hope on grace? And what does it mean to set your hope on grace? Well, it must involve the hope of your full future salvation. We already know that. Peter gives us then two new concepts that explain how it is that we set our hope. So first, the text says preparing your minds for action. And then second, it says being sober-minded. So we need to walk through both of these ideas before we can talk about the grace on which we are to set our hope. So as we walk through these two ideas, keep in mind that they are both explaining what it means to set your hope. So first, let's talk about preparing our minds. 
So again, isn't it interesting that he begins with our thinking rather than our hearts or our actions? Some of my seminary professors use the triad of think, feel, do. Every passage of Scripture is teaching us how to think, what to feel, and what to do. Now, some passages focus on one part of that more than others. As an example, if we read part of a psalm that says, praise the Lord, then we can apply think, feel, do to that verse to study it. So we are to think about how great and worthy of praise the Lord is. We are to feel reverence and awe and love for God. And then what are we to do from that verse? Well, we're to go and we're to praise Him. So thought, emotions, and actions are all very important, but the primary theme in the vast majority of biblical texts is thinking. They at least begin with thinking, if nothing else. So it's only as our minds have been renewed by the Lord that we can then think correctly. And if we are thinking correctly, then we will know better how to address our emotions and how to act. So here in 1 Peter, the text is calling us to see all, throughout, all three elements throughout, but he begins with thinking. So step one to understanding and applying our hope is to think correctly about our hope. The ESV says, preparing your minds for action. That's a good translation of the Greek. The original language that the New Testament was written in and translated literally, the Greek says, gird up the loins of your mind. Common phrase we use all the time now, I'm sure. Well, the idea behind this phrase goes back to the ancient world. Everyone wore long tunics and robes everywhere. That was really the norm throughout most of human history. Well, we don't really wear that kind of clothing anymore, so it sounds strange. Now, women, you'll be under, able to understand this better than us men since you wear dresses often. You cannot run, fight, or do strenuous labor well in a dress. Well, the same goes for robes and tunics. So the robe, it would get in the way. It would hinder your movement. It would limit your motion. It would catch on things as you moved around. It's generally unhelpful to have a long flowing robe if you need to do anything physical. And so, anyone who needed to do something quickly had to prepare. And they prepared by pulling up the robe and tucking it into their belt. And then that would free up their legs to do whatever they needed to do. And something tells me that action was much preferred over face planting in the dirt. Well, this phrase, it was just a common idiom for getting ready to get the job done in the ancient world. A modern phrase that's fairly similar is roll up your sleeves. Time to get busy. So before you can do anything right or feel anything properly, Peter tells you that you need to think correctly. Right thinking is the gateway to the rest of what Peter will tell us in these verses. We ex see examples of this concept in the Old Testament also. In Exodus 12, God gave Moses instructions on how Israel was to eat and celebrate the Passover meal just before they, were, uh, just before they fled out of Egypt. He commanded them to, have, to eat the Passover with their belts fastened, their sandals on, and their staff in hand, and that they were to eat quickly. Well, why? Well, the idea was they needed to be ready to flee Egypt in a hurry whenever God was ready to lead them out. God was teaching them to be mentally and physically ready for the flight to come. They had to make mental as well as physical preparations. We have to make mental preparations in order to hope. Peter may well have had this passage in mind when he wrote this text. Jesus gave many similar warnings about being prepared for his return. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. 
and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the Israelites had to be ready to leave Egypt, whereas we have to be ready and prepared for the, for the return of Christ at all times. We are to be training our minds for that day. And Scripture teaches God's people to prepare for many things, but especially for Christ's return. So this is the thing that we are preparing for. This is the grace that we are to set our hope on. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. For now, we need to ask ourselves another question. How do we train and prepare our minds for action? Well, the primary and the most important way to prepare your minds is through the study and the meditation of God's Word. The Scriptures teach us everything we need to know about life and about salvation. It isn't just a book about everything. Rather, it's a very specific book containing all we need to know to trust in God. Learning from the world cannot teach you what you need to know about God's grace. There's no other source from which you can learn and receive the gospel. And this is why Peter took three verses just before this section to explain how it is that we receive the Bible from God. So it's only as we utilize the Word of God and meditate on it that our emotions and our actions will be informed. Only when we meditate on the person of Christ and His work on our behalf will we be prepared for His return. We cannot reason our way to heaven any more than we can argue people into believing. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit applying the Word to our hearts so that we believe and so that we grow. It is God's powerful Word that will change and correct our thinking. The Bible teaches us how to think, which then enables us to know how to feel and act. Well, that's the first way we learn how to set our hope. The second way in which we are to set our hope on grace is by being sober-minded. And I think the idea here is a little simpler than preparing our minds for action. Peter is urging us to have a certain attitude. He's telling us to behave in a certain way, especially as we deal with the glorious truths of our salvation. We need to have a reverence for the Lord and the salvation we have been given. We need to be somber in how we deal with the gospel. It is not something we should joke about, make light of, or treat flippantly. If we are commanded not to take His name in vain, then we shouldn't take His gospel in vain either. The Word of Christ is powerful and active, and therefore we should take it seriously. We should also be alert. The problem with our sinful hearts is that literally anything other than the Lord can become an idol. And so the idols of our hearts numb us to the truth, and they keep our eyes looking at the earth instead of looking to Christ. So addictive sins in particular prevent us from looking to the hope of grace that we have. Alcohol, drugs, hobbies, or even the approval of others, all these things can blind us to the truth in what we should be doing. That is why we must be self-controlled in everything we do, knowing that anything could could distract us from what Peter is about to command. We must be focused 
on the hope of glory we have in Christ. We need to have a singular purpose in life, to live out the gospel while we await the fullness of our salvation. And it is only as we have prepared our minds for action and lived sober-mindedly that we can truly set our hope on the grace to come. And we've already hinted at what the coming grace is. It is the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope is a forward-looking hope. We are anticipating and looking forward to the day we will see Christ face to face. On that day, our salvation will become fully complete. We will be perfect. We will be without sin. No pain or struggle will make it to that day either. Sickness and death will be defeated. We will receive new glorified bodies that will free us from sickness. And we will receive the full inheritance that the Lord is guarding for us. We will enter into glory in its fullness. That is the grand future promise which we await. And because of that rich future hope we have, we are to be preparing our minds and to be sober-minded now. Set your hope on the grace to come and prepare for it. As Paul would say, run in such a way as to win the crown. But the preparation and right thinking Peter's commanding is not just for the future, but for the present as well. It is only as we are thinking correctly about the future that we will live holy lives in the present age. So that leads us into our second point. Because of grace, we must be focused on holiness. We must be focused on holiness. And this is looking at verses 14 through 16. So Peter refers to us as obedient children in verse 14. And before he gives the commands about how we are to live, he starts with our fundamental identities. It's only when we understand who we really are that we are going to behave correctly. And once again, the indicative precedes the imperative. Scripture refers to mankind as children in many places. To be a child is just to be descended from a parent. You all know that. But the Bible does not always call people children in a good way. Ephesians 2 calls the people of the world children of wrath. If you are not trusting in Christ, then you are a child of wrath. The identity of the unbeliever is not tied to being a child of God, but a child of chaos and sin. Jesus called some of the Pharisees who opposed Him, what? Children of the devil. That is what the Bible teaches about unbelievers. They are children of the devil. I don't know about you, but that is not a good identity to have. But if you are in Christ, then you are not a child of wrath. Instead, you are a child of God. So when Jesus saves us and makes us new creations, we are adopted into the family of God. We become co-heirs with Christ of glory. We gain God the Father as our heavenly Father through Christ. We are brought into the very family of God. The Westminster Confession says some amazing things about adoption from Scripture, and here are a few of those things. We are justified and made partakers of grace. We are made members of the church. We receive all the liberties and privileges of the children of God. We have the name of God stamped upon our hearts. We have the spirit of adoption and we have access to the throne of God, which, which we may approach with boldness even. We are enabled to cry out to our Father who will pity, protect, provide for, 
discipline us and guide us and guard us until we get home to glory. And notice there that the same God who is tender and caring is also the one who disciplines us. He knows when to be gentle with us weak and imperfect beings. He can be tender and can comfort us, but He can also be stern in His application of discipline. But in every way, He is a loving Father that will only do what is best for us. It's an amazing privilege that we are children of the Almighty God. That is the identity which we have been given, and it is a one which may never be taken away. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 3, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. It is this fundamental change in our identities that allows us to pursue holiness. That is why Peter can call us obedient children, even though we are clearly imperfect now. He doesn't call us children because we are perfect now, though one day we will be. We are obedient children because the grace of God has transformed us and allowed, allowed us to walk in a way that pleases our Father. The work of Christ has led to our adoption despite our failure and sin. And that is why it is a gift of grace and not of works. There has been a complete transformation through the Spirit to enable us to obey the Word of God. Now notice this is not the same thing as legalism. Legalism is when someone tries to earn their salvation through works. Legalism focuses on the externals rather than on the heart or on the gospel. Legalism puts the emphasis on self rather than on God. But our identities as obedient children doesn't mean that we may earn our salvation. Rather, salvation has been accomplished for us through Christ, and therefore we may obey and pursue holiness as redeemed children. And it is crucial that you understand that point before we continue. Peter does not tell unbelievers to follow these commands, nor would he expect them to want to obey these commands. He has grounded our thinking on who we are in Christ as children of God. And only once he has reminded us of who we are as new creations does he then move on to these commands. And Peter gives two commands here. And the first is a negative command telling us what not to do. And the second will be a positive command telling us what to do. So first, Peter tells us not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. This is the negative command. To be conformed is to be molded, fitted, or become similar to something. So to be conformed to the world is to become like the world. And so in a sense, this, is a, this warning is simple. Do not be like the world. You are an obedient child of God. Why then would you want to conform to something lesser and perfect and evil? As I said earlier, understanding our identity in Christ is crucial if we are to understand these commands. You are God's sons and daughters, so you must act like it. Peter tells his readers not to conform to the passions of their former ignorance. Now, his audience were likely Gentile believers, meaning they were once pagans. So the charge to them is don't return to your pagan ways. Now, it doesn't take much to figure out that the same holds true for us. 
If you remember your conversion, then you likely remember what it was like to walk in the passions of your former ignorance. My guess is hints of old sins and vices crop up often. That old habit to, to drink, cuss, cheat, or pull for Duke, that creeps into your mind. Moments In moments of temptation, it's difficult to stop and to remember who you are now in Christ. So Peter is commanding us, don't go back to that old lifestyle. You have left it behind already. That old man has been crucified with Christ, and you are now a new person. So don't go backwards. Even if you grew up in the church and you don't remember a day that you didn't trust in Christ, the world can still be tempting at times. What if you're missing out? One time won't hurt. Unbelievers, they don't seem to deal with difficulties or sickness. Maybe they're onto something. Well, Peter's command is a warning to us not to abandon our first love. Christ is more than enough, so don't go back to the old vomit of the world. If you could see all of God's blessings in this life and the ones to come in one column, and then in another column you saw all that the world had to offer, you would never choose the things of this world. And that is why we must discipline ourselves to see through eyes of faith, because that sight will never fail or mislead us. God knows our hearts. He knows how easily tempted and swayed we can be. And throughout Scripture, God has warned His people not to think or act like the world. Don't even let the world tempt you, lest you fall into its traps. Leviticus 18, the first five verses, they summarize this well when it says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You see, you may remember in our uh, scripture reading, Leviticus 19, that same phrase repeated again and again. I am the Lord. Well, the world is tempting at times, but we are called to something far better. The world promises you everything, but can give you nothing lasting. The things of this world, they look good to the eye. But just like the fruit to Adam and Eve look good, the end is nothing but death. And that is why Peter warns us to separate ourselves from worldly thinking. If you are not positively training your mind with the Word, then the world will train you. If you are not training your children in the faith, then the world will teach them something far different. We are learning and we are curious beings. So the question is, what is it? What are you learning from? The world says inclusivity and equity is the only gospel you need. Just accept people for who they are and affirm them no matter what. Love is love, friends. Subjective truth is all there is. Your truth isn't my truth, but that's okay, as long as you're not hurting anybody with your truth. The world has all you could ever want. Just get an Amazon Prime membership and a credit card, put it on the card. Are you lonely? Don't worry. Twitter and Facebook, they're here to help. Are you bored? Well, TikTok can remove your boredom and possibly your identity to China as well. Are you feeling down or anxious? Get some self-affirming, confidence-building, self-love therapy and boost your self-confidence. 
Well, no matter what the topic is, the world has plenty to parade in front of your eyes. It has plenty of answers to throw at you. But the warning of Scripture is that the world cannot truly fix anything. So you don't give in to the world's thinking. Don't buy into the lies of the culture that turn you away from your Heavenly Father. Don't fall into the trap. The eyes are deceptive, and more often than not, they serve the idolatry of the heart. So that was a negative command. Second, Peter gives us a positive command. We must be holy because God is holy. Verses 15 and 16, they essentially state the same thing twice. And that's really an emphatic statement to drive it home. And Peter again prefaces the command with a reminder of who we are as believers. We are obedient children because we are redeemed and adopted children of God. And because the Lord is holy, we must be holy. We will follow after, emulate, and be like our Father. And since the Lord is holy, we will be holy too. And we really see this pattern for us throughout Scripture. We are in Christ, and therefore we cannot live in this way, but must live in this other way. Paul says something nearly identical to this in the first few verses of Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So when we compare this message to the text for this morning from verses 13 through 16, we see many of the same patterns. We are to live holy lives to God as an act of worship. We do so by not conforming to the world, but by being transformed in our thinking. The only way to know how to do this is to meditate on the Scripture and to lay it on our hearts. That is how the Spirit will apply it to us and make us more holy. That's the reason God sent His Word to the prophets in the first place, for our good. They were serving not themselves, but you. We must pursue and drive on to holiness in our lives. This is the command from Scripture. But the temptation is often to address one part of our lives and leave another part alone. We are quick to admit cussing or lying is wrong and to address those sins. But how often do we examine our hearts and search for more secretive sins, more closely, dearly held sins, like discontentedness or envy? In my experience, learning to be content in every situation is the most difficult struggle in the Christian life. We want to be in charge, and we want what we want. And how difficult it is to stop pushing for what we want and to rather submit to God's will for our lives. That is a difficult sin to tackle. And how easy it is to address those easy sins, but to hide those more beloved sins. But the purity and holiness of God does not allow for partial submission to His standards. We must do as 2 Corinthians 10.5 teaches, and we must take every thought captive to Christ. Our entire lives must be brought into obedience to Christ in thought, word, and deed. We must examine how we think, feel, and do life. And when something does not line up with Scripture or the principles therein, we have to repent and we have to give up those things as sin. We must do as Paul did and count every worldly thing as rubbish that he might have Christ. 
Going back to other biblical commands, if your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, remove it. Flee from sin and from temptation. And yet it's often easier said than done. As a sinner myself, I know how tempting worldly thinking can be and how difficult holy living can be at times. And once again, knowledge of who God is, of who we are, is crucial to understanding and pursuing holiness. The Lord is a holy God. He is supremely, totally, and perfectly holy. Throughout the whole Bible, the Lord is declared again and again and again as holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. His holiness means total perfection and separation from all that is evil. He is the consuming fire that destroys all evil and will rightfully judge sin on the last day. He is wholly separate and other from anything inside of creation and has the right to judge His creation. The Old Testament book of Leviticus, which we've now looked at twice this morning, it builds on this theme of God's holiness. Peter quotes Leviticus in verse 16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, commentators like to argue over what passage he is using since that quote appears multiple times throughout the book of Leviticus. But I think he is looking at the theme that the line summarizes more than any specific instance. So really, I think he's using all of the quotes. The entire book of Leviticus focuses on the holiness of God and therefore how Israel must live as a result. And there are two primary aspects to its instructions. First, holiness for Israel entails a total separation from all that is sinful and unclean. Israel may not behave like the nations. God is holy, so if they are to remain His people, they too must accurately reflect God. They cannot behave like the nations in their worship or their life. They had to lead holy lives. And second, Israel had to observe the ceremonial law and its focus on purity and the law. The entire ceremonial law served to show the total perfection which God's holiness demanded. The law also taught Israel that mankind was totally incapable of meeting God's perfect standard. So the ceremonial law pointed Israel forward even when it was given to the day that the perfect sacrifice would come and redeem them from their sin and failure. So if Israel was to have the holy God dwell among them, they had to be cleansed. And only in Christ is that fulfillment met. Only in Christ has the holiness and the justice of God been satisfied. And so if anyone wants to see the Lord, they must be holy. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Pursue peace with everyone as well as holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you will not see the Lord. And that means two things. First, you need the holiness of Christ in salvation. Without His holiness, you are doomed. But you, if you are a believer, then you have His holiness already. That is what it means to be justified, to be covered by the blood of Christ. And then second, you must live a holy life. If you have truly been regenerated, then drive on to holiness. And if you don't care about holiness then it shows that your heart has never truly been changed. The Lord works in the hearts of His children, and He makes them holier. And if you have no desire for holiness, then you need to search your heart, and you need to cry out to God. Because something is wrong if you don't want to be holy 
as a Christian. If you do not want to grieve over sin, if you do not hate it, then you are in grave danger. So the question is, the Lord is holy, are you? Well, it's never too late to go to Christ and ask for His mercy and His help. The Lord is able to work in us and to make us holy because He Himself is perfectly holy. He is eternally and infinitely holy. And that is part of what we can connect back to the sermon from last week on verses 10 through 12. God has given us His Word, which shows with the utmost certainty that God is, has always been, and will continue to be forever perfect in holiness and power. And that does not just mean that He is perfectly good. His holiness also means that He is pure, powerful, just, and beautiful. All of God's attributes are tied together and connected because God is one. And this perfectly holy God has called you His child through Christ. And as children like to do with their parents, we are called to imitate our Father in holiness. Our adoption has brought us into the very family of God, into the very Trinity. And in Christ, we are invited to partake in and pursue the holiness of God. There is beauty in the holiness of God. Let's conclude. We began with the proposition that because of grace, we must live holy lives. We then walked through two points, that because of grace, we must look to the glory and focus on holiness. We have a holy God who has adopted us and made us holy through Christ. And our salvation is really such a fascinating thing. Because on the one hand, we are totally incapable of any growth in holiness on our own. We are totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit to build us up in grace. And yet, on the other hand, we are fully responsible to pursue holiness and growth, or God would not command it. So often we want to pit our will against God's, but that is not what we see here in the Scripture. And it is this great mystery that we are both fully responsible to pursue holiness, and yet only the Spirit at work within us can bring about the growth. And the only way I know to explain that is that the Spirit enables us to drive, pursue, and desire holiness. And so God is 100% behind our full efforts, even when our efforts are less than 100%. So if you're walking with Christ, and yet this holiness of God causes you fear, take heart. Baby birds don't read flight manuals. Fish don't watch instructional videos on how their gills work. And babies can cry without being taught. And if you have been reborn and adopted into the family of God, holiness will come naturally. It may not always be evident to you. You have to push and drive on in it. But if God is at work in your heart, He will not leave you where you are. He will never leave you or forsake you. The Lord is the only one able to present you blameless before the Father with great joy. So gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded and pursue holiness. You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You are a holy God, that You are perfect in power and love and mercy and grace, and that the total perfection of Your person means that no sin can dwell with You. And on the one hand, that is terrifying because we are sinful, and yet through Christ and His cleansing blood, There is no sin left to be paid for in our account. 
And so we can dwell in the very presence of a holy God and render praise. Lord, help us to do that even this day. Help us to rejoice in the salvation we have and to praise you for your holiness. Lord, help us also to drive on in holiness that we might live in a way that is pleasing to you. Build us up in this, I pray. For I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.